I am curious, like how the politics of disability can inform some of the experiences that I have, not just as somebody who tries to practice, as somebody who writes, as somebody who educates students, like how can we broaden a traditional focus on like mobility, circulation and access that was so important to um, that generation? How can we broaden it today? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with designer, historian, and theorist David Gisson. David joins us today to discuss his recent book, The Architecture of Disability. David, welcome. Nice to be here, Charles. Thanks for having me back and uh, looking forward to speaking to you. Welcome, welcome back. In fact, you are the first repeat guest on the Future of the American City. Um, uh, the book, you know, could not be more more timely, uh, more relevant. I know it's getting quite a lot of attention for many, many audiences. So thanks for thanks for sharing uh, it with us. The subtitle of the book, Buildings, Cities, and Landscapes Beyond Access, begins to indicate uh, one of your primary claims. Uh, the book opens with a personal anecdote uh, that is your experience of having given a presentation at a symposium on these topics uh, in which at the end of your paper, you were confronted with question after question from a very engaged audience, apparently, not really so much about the contents of your paper or its claims, but rather how it is that architects could make the world more accessible. And in many ways, your book offers you know both implicit and explicit critiques of accessibility as the primary frame. So to open, like why why would you be skeptical about access as a primary focus of architecture in relationship to disability? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks again um, for you know as I mentioned before, thanks again for having me back, and, and thanks for that great question. Um, I think one thing I should mention is that while the book is very critical of approaches to access and the politics of accessibility, I and 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 any disabled person in the United States is very much the beneficiary of decades and decades of activism around improving access and accessibility in buildings and cities. So, um, you know, I don't want to be too dismissive of the work that has come from from many people um, to make um, everyday life for disabled people um, a little better through the pursuit of access. That said. Um, I do feel within architecture, which is the discipline, you know, I've spent my entire um, professional career within, that um, access tends to overwhelm any and all other discussions of, um, of uh, disability in uh, discussions of buildings, landscapes, and cities. And so um, one of my critiques uh, in the book is that on the one hand, a lot of uh, approaches to accessibility have a very kind of like um, almost crude and, and functional interpretation of disabled people's needs. Um, for example, people that uh, may use a wheelchair are seen as, um, you know, needing to increase their mobility and their circulation through space. People that are blind need to have more access to things that provide tactility or other sensations to help them, again, navigate um, sidewalks or hallways or enter and exit rooms more easily. However, as important as all of that is, I think the discipline of architecture has any number of um, ideas moving through it about capacity and incapacity, disability impairment that need to be addressed from how we um, educate architects to how we set up our um, design studios to how we teach the history of architecture 
to how we imagine and think about and, and, and metaphors that we use to describe cities, to the kinds of qualities that we valorize in landscapes, and even to how we construct buildings. All of these different areas have um, um, ideas moving through them and, and real experiences of impairment and disability that I find very little discussed in, dis in, um, in larger discussions about disability and architecture, and that I think are really important. You mentioned uh, acknowledged your indebtedness, our collective indebtedness to um, disability rights activists. Um, uh, earlier this year, we uh, we saw Judy Human uh, pass away, considered by many to be the mother of the modern disability rights movement in this country. Um, who else should we be thinking about in that acknowledgement of that uh, generational uh, civil rights struggle? I mean, I think. People like Judy Heumann, um, Justin Dart, um, Ed Roberts, Bradley Lomax, among many other people, um, were really central to developing um, a, a kind of framework for disability rights in the United States. Um, almost all of them, those people that I just mentioned, actually all of them were all wheelchair users. Um, they were all um, of a kind of quote unquote baby boomer generation. And um, and a lot of their politics was um, about ref about the right to work and the right to live on their own. Okay, these are two very um, important um, things that they agitated for the quote unquote independent living movement, which all those people were a part. And Judy Human was certainly a part of that. So um, you know, very very important. Um, I think one of the things that we forget is that um, one of the goals of their activism was to um, put an end to the kind of institutionalization that many disabled people experience, particularly wheelchair users like them, um, almost all polio survivors, right? Or people um, with very serious um, uh, neuromuscular diseases. Um, so for that particular generation, there was often a choice, either one was institutionalized or one could live at home, okay? So a lot of their activism was about um, trying to have more and more of a quote-unquote normal middle-class American life, something that very much mirrored a lot of civil rights, um, uh, you know, contemporaneous civil rights when they were very active in the late 60s and early 1970s. So, for example, in Berkeley, um, where Judy Human eventually settled after um, growing up in New York City, she and Ed Roberts and Brad Lomax and others, um, uh, they didn't, if you were a student at Berkeley, for example, like at Roberts, you had to live, believe it or not, in the hospital on campus. If you were in a wheelchair, you didn't get, have the right to live in a dorm. So one of the things they agitated for is to live in a dormitory. Judy Human wanted to improve accessibility to housing in Berkeley. Um, Brad, Judy, and Ed Roberts also all agitated for transformations on things like the sidewalks in Berkeley so that they can move and circulate through the space. So all of their values are very important. Um, you know, and they had a, a gigantic impact on um, the physical um, infrastructure and apartment buildings and campus um, in and around um, Berkeley in the Bay Area. Um, so I think, you know, I think their work is really important. The question I always have, you know, is, um, you know, today for someone like myself who was an architecture student as an undergrad, an architecture student as a grad student, was briefly a practicing architect, went back to school to get a PhD, became an educator and an academic. Like I am curious like how the politics of disability can inform some of the experiences that I have. Um, not just, you know, as 
as somebody who tries to practice, as somebody who writes, as somebody who educates students, like how can we broaden a traditional focus on like mobility, circulation, and access that was so important to um, that generation? How can we broaden it today? Among the discourses available today um, is a very, very clear, very strong discourse in literature around design and adjacent fields that argues that, in fact, disability is not uh, located in the body, but rather is socially constructed. Uh, and that architecture, uh, landscape architecture, urban design planning are therefore complicit uh, or maybe instrumental in the construction of disability. Is, is, is this a form of argumentation that you your research supports? Yeah, um, just very quickly, because some people that are listening in might not be familiar with some of these ideas. So um, in disability studies, people often talk about, um, uh, quote unquote, models of disability, which you can just talk about as like frameworks might be an easier point, point of view. So um, in the past, people often had medical frameworks of disability that like, dis as you point out, that um, disability was um, within the um, bodies and minds of, the, of a person with impairments and that um, the field of medicine, physical therapy, forms of physical therapy, science act needed to be called on to, to transform the offending uh, <laughs> um, elements or features of one's body or mind into something that functioned better. Um, the social model of disability um, argues that the, as you point out, that the, um, the quote unquote um, problems that arise or, or disability is when one's impairments meet an unaccommodating environment. So that can be everything from a, a monumental staircase and from a building that somebody who has difficulty um, climbing stairs encounters to a overwhelming um, um, environment for somebody that may have some kind of um, forms of neurodifference. Okay. What I'm interested in and, and what the book um, um, explores is how ideas from what are called the what's often called the critical model or critical framework of disability can can um, can be utilized um, in architectural um, thinking um, and practices. So for in a critical model of disability, um, one tries to move away from both the medical and social model um, because of this one issue. So people that adhere to a critical model of disability argues that both the medical way of understanding disability and the kind of environmental or social way of understanding disability sees disabilities and impairments as kind of a lack or a problem that has to be addressed. So one either has a problem that science needs to address or medicine needs to address, or one has a problem that needs to be addressed environmentally. Whereas a critical model tries to understand what can be gained um, from impairments and making opening up a space for one's impairments to inform and transform um, very broad ways of thinking about disability and culture. So for example, um, adherence of the critical framework of disability say that instead of describing somebody as having a deaf person as having hearing loss, we would describe something called death gain as that person learns how to use um, sign language or develops other forms of communication that those of us can hear don't typically have access to or utilize. Instead of using terms like vision loss to describe blindness, um, people like Georgina Klieg use the term um, um, gaining blindness to describe her capacity to, for example, use braille, but also in her own work, she's an, a blind art theorist, to um, experience um, works of art through um, tactile 
forms of uh, interpretation and also to utilize tools like um, language description as very rich visual um, uh, forms of representation that are outside of optical forms of representation like photography. Um, so these are really in um, kind of important ideas to me, ones that have been really inspiring in terms of developing some of the ideas in the book. So for example, um, we can talk about curb cuts again. Um, so for example, a critical model of disability, if we're gonna look at something like an urban space, right? Um, uh, we can contrast that to an environmental model of disability. So an environmental model of disability, you'd see something like a street and a curb and a sidewalk. And um, one may have difficulty like, you know, transitioning from the street to the sidewalk because of the curb. And so you would install a curb cut to ease the transition and ease one's experience of disability. So uh, by contrast, I would ask like, why do cities have um, curbs and sidewalks and streets in the first place? Or another way to put this, a critical model of disability would ask, why do we valorize circulation in urban space? Um, and how can the kind of um, slowness or immobility that those of us that have um, ambulatory impairments, you know, impairments of our legs, how can those inform urban design not to help us circulate better in urban space, but to imagine urban space in which we use other kinds of metaphors besides flow or, you know, again, circulation or, or other kinds of metaphors that emphasize mobility in urban space? How can we introduce stagnancies, occlusions, um, among many, many other ideas? And these are not, you know, these ideas have been explored by um, other urbanists going back at least 120 years, um, at least. Um, but giving this kind of language or approach a disability perspective, I think is, is important and very valuable. So if the social construct argument, the social theory of disability, in, in contrast to the medical you know, theory that preceded it, um, uh, imagines a misfit or a lack of fit between bodies and their environments, this renders you know designers ableist effectively by imagining the body to be optimal in certain ways, whereas a critical one is more potentially emancipatory for design? Is it, are there other realms of you know, both phenomenal experience, bodily immersion, bodily experience that are available through a kind of critical lens vis-a-vis uh, -vis architecture? Yeah, I mean, so other ways of thinking of a critical model of disability, again, we can we can talk about cities some more. Um, so for example, there's a, a, a um, environmental critique of public art or monuments in urban space. Um, in which a lot of um, uh, disabled people have have asked, like, how can we have access to the public art and the experiences of monumentality in cities? Um, so, for example, um, sometimes you'll see these tactile panels in front of monuments that enable somebody who's blind to like experience what a monument looks like, or um, uh, sometimes uh, artists, let's say, that are sensitive to the experiences of people that have. Um, disabilities will sometimes incorporate things to make monumental spaces more accessible. I would argue that a critical model might make alliances with others who are very critical of the ideas of monumentality in space and want to ask, like, is monumentality a value that we really want to have access to? Or maybe disabled people could develop a critical approach to monuments. So here's a good example, a very concrete example of that. Um, so throughout the book, I often talk about um, experiences that I had when I lived in Vienna, Austria. Um, I lived there for a year as a visiting professor. And when I was there, 
I learned about this movement that I really knew nothing about before I lived there that was called the Wounded War Veterans Movement. Um, that it began after World War I, when 150,000 um, uh, uh, veterans, many of which were either amputees or were blinded or deafened from ordinance or had PTSD, among other kinds of ailments, um, settled in the city and its surroundings. And they really transformed um, uh, the experience of the city in ways that still register to this day. Anyway, one of the um, things that they implemented was a, a kind of disability critique of monuments. And so um, they, in addition to um, making unusual demands um, around public space, for example, um, one of their ideas was that um, instead of um, just empty park spaces that one should have the opportunity or they should have the opportunity to like grow food in public spaces because they were poor and starving and hungry so they wanted to transform public parks into places to grow food one of their other um ideas or or demands really was to um demilitarize or or to um, destroy um, any monuments that glorified war in the city. It was people very angry about what had happened to them, obviously. Um, and so while they were unsuccessful, they demanded an end to military parades and the decommissioning of the, of, you know, the, the dozens and dozens of war monuments in the city center. They were unsuccessful in doing this, but a really interesting, really important um, form of activism from that time. And something that I think could inspire people today when they think about, you know, what is a dis what kinds of critical forms of disability activism or politics can be brought into into contemporary cities. In uh, a section of the book that deals specifically with uh, urbanization and disability, uh, you wrote that embedded within the streets, sidewalks, water systems, waste management systems, and myriad other infrastructural elements of cities are several key physical concepts that present challenges to people with any number of impairments. One of these is the belief that a city is an immense circulatory apparatus within which movement must be continuously extended, enhanced, and accelerated. Um, and then you went on um, later in that section to argue that I want, using the first person, I want to open a space for another idea of the city, the urbanization of impairment, where disability perspectives offer a deeper challenge to the city as a space of flows, property accumulation, monumental aesthetics, and narrow concepts of public health. Um, what what might a city reconceived around an urbanization of impairment today, if not Vienna uh, post World War One, uh, be like uh, in lieu of the kind of infinite circulation and expansion of access through mobility? Yeah, I mean, so uh, one of the people that I mentioned who um, I find inspiring, and um, hesitate to say that because it's a little embarrassing because he's he's a figure that has is sort of seen as a kind of um, nostalgic romantic historicist but um also in vienna one of the figures that i refer to very early on in that ch chapter is um camillo zitta the viennese urbanist who um made arguments about urban space that are really still very difficult to integrate into contemporary um urban environmental history for example so one of the things um this is a very concrete example so he was this is uh, somebody who was very critical of the um transformations in, in Vienna uh, around the Ringstrasse and the kind of monumental um, scale and physical demands that um, the kind of the boulevard system that was built into that um, space made on people that were inhabiting a space. He was an unusual figure in that 
120 years ago, he wrote about people that were, well, he used the word infirm or behindert. It's in German, it means like, um, it means like disabled, essentially. But people that were disabled and elderly, um, uh, the kind of difficulty they had moving through these very large monumental avenues. And so what he argued, which was a very strange idea, this is the idea that's hard to integrate into contemporary urban environmental um, history. He argued that the, the historic city, the pre-modern Baroque and medieval urban fabric was more physiologically supportive for these people. Strange idea. But within that space are the, 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 um, the uh, emphasis on, on, on increasing um, physical circulation and mobility is lessened. It's really non, it's not a non-existent um, um, quality of that space. So in that way, it's, um, it's, it's supportive. But the other idea of his, or the, or the other way that we can understand this, is that the um, street profile is much more narrow in those spaces compared to like broad boulevards. So they're shadier, right? So there's also the idea that it's more, um, from an environmental perspective, it's more physically comfortable. So again, you know, like I said, it's an, it's odd because you don't think of like narrow street profiles of crooked streets being physiologically supportive. It just doesn't make much sense to most people. But as somebody who lived there and experienced the difference between those broad boulevards and that kind of space that he was writing about 120 years ago, much of which still exists, I can really appreciate that argument because I do think it's, you know, I do think there's there's something there in terms of experiencing those fragments of urban space that still exist before ideas about circulation and solarization existed. They actually do feel much more physiologically supportive to somebody like myself who has considerable physical differences. Um, so what are some other examples? I mean, in the book, I use, I, I illustrate um, some of the thinking in the chapter with a project by... Um, Mitch McEwen, who's a, a currently a professor at Princeton University and is who, who's a very interesting architect. And um, she did this project for um, Mabel Wilson and Sean Anderson's reconstruction show at MoMA, in which she made this alternative version of New Orleans, in which um, the kind of marshland of New Orleans was more or less preserved. Um, and in which um, these kinds of, um, I think they're supposed to be made out of um, bamboo, but these kinds of light wooden structures are scattered around this marshland. She imagined it as part of, part of this um, very broad, large narrative about what if New Orleans took an alternative history, um, if there was a successful 1811 um, enslaved up, uh, people's uprising um, from, you know, um, um, within that particular um, region in southern Louisiana. So it has this whole um, complex narrative that relates to the show's exploration of race and um, American cities, um, which is really um, um, kind of inspiring as a work of like experimental history. But also embedded in that is this completely alternative urban world that she imagined, which I find very relevant to many of the ideas that I'm exploring. So, and just one last thing about that particular project, which is important to mention in that chapter, you know, I'm not just talking about a disability critique of cities as, as, as powerful and essential as that is to the chapter. I'm also trying to make these alliances with other people like uh, Mitch and others um, who are rethinking urban space from from different perspectives, but that in which there can be a lot of alliances. So again, to go back to streets and sidewalks, I mean, as a disabled person, I have very critical <laughs> ideas or um, or 
I have a lot of questions about the kinds of um, um, hard distinctions, let's say, between um, places in which pedestrians go and places that are made for cars. And there are any number of other people who are also questioning um, a lot of the characteristics of streets and sidewalks from, from the perspective of environmentalist arguments. Um, for example, I talk about Keon Go's work around urban hydrology or Nikhil Anand, who's also very interested in developing um, kind of de or post-colonial ideas of urban hydrology and how those also involve all of us really questioning many of the kinds of built hard um, space spaces that are built that are um, constructed into cities around like buildings, property, sidewalks and streets. I mean, for me, you know, as a reader and, and you know, one of the reasons why the reference to Cite, you know, is is productive here. However, you know, out of fashion, you know, his, his work may, may or may not have been, is it reveals in the fact that it's so counterintuitive how so many assumptions are based on this expectation that, you know, enhanced mobility is the solution to impairments with respect to mobility, right? The idea that if we just had more, you know, more automobility, you know, more increased access, more fluid flows. And, and those ideas are so tightly wedded, even in my own thought process about these topics, certainly um, I, I find them, you know, evident in so many forms of urban thought, you know, inscribed in urban environments, the idea that it's simply larger, more fluid, more expansive, as you, as you mentioned. So that's in part why I think you're looking back to that Viennese history is quite powerful. Um, I, I want to follow up on the notion of these alliances. I mean, I think you're you're very modest in that formulation. I think you've also been a, a participant and a protagonist in many ways with your own practice, your own work, exhibitions and project making. Um, I'm struck by the diversity range of topics and disciplinary affiliations, let's say, um, but also their, their contemporaneity, right? the, the fact that I haven't seen them joined together. And I wonder if, if based on your experience and looking at those, kind of curating them, supporting them, um, can you imagine or you know advocate for something like a kind of disability futures? You know, is is there a, is there a project that we could mobilize there that we could you know put a handle on that might be um, might be interesting going forward? Yeah, I love that question. I mean, one of the things I think one of it goes back to some things we talked about earlier. I think one of the main contributions of the quote unquote critical model of disability is ideas that we um, terms such as like the preservation and conservation of disability. Like in in both a medical and environmental model of disability, one imagines that a future better world is one where disability doesn't exist. Um, so imagine disability futures, as to use your coinage, I think is a, a radical and, and frankly kind of wonderful and very provocative idea. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, I think that's extremely important. I think in the in the book. Again, the two ways that I explore that idea are through these ideas of the conservation of the preservation and conservation of disability. So just very quickly. Um, so the preservation of disability, um, the way I use the term, describes the way that um, we and we take we examine the way history is constructed into urban space, right? Which is always um, represents contemporary values, right? We know that, that the history that gets preserved represents the kind of values of the of the time at which it was preserved, not the time at which it was made, right? Um, so in today, you know, we're very much broadening practices of preservation and conservation in this country to include more um, diverse um, histories that have been represented in the past. I think there's a space to open up um, uh, 
ideas about disability within those new, more inclusive preservation practices. That involves um, not only just preserving disability history in space, but also acknowledging the fact that there's like a lot of violence wrapped up in, in the kinds of um, uh, monumental spaces and historical spaces um, in this country and in any number of other countries, but also employing disabled people um, such as myself um, to be involved in preservation and restoration practices and thinking about like the character which things get preserved and appear as history for the future, um, how those might reflect ideas about um, dis disability and disabled people. The conservation, the idea of the conservation of disability, which is a coinage of a very important disability theorist named Rosemary Garland Thompson, is more complex and, and more provocative. And so the conservation of disability really is talking about biology and nature. And it's thinking about like, how can we conserve aberrance as part of the biological diversity of the world? And it's something we talked about when we um, had a conversation before, but it's something that I find still so provocative. So for example, today, a lot of um, um, not just biologists, but also people in, in the landscape disciplines and, and um, let's say urban ecologists evaluate um, the natural history of cities based upon its capacities. So for example, you know, certain kinds of species of plants are good because they absorb carbon and release oxygen. Certain kinds of shellfish are good because they clean urban waterways. So when we're talking about the conservation of impairment or the conservation of disability, we're trying to understand like, is there a place for us as ecologists, biologists, urban, you know, urban designers, is there a place for us to cultivate or um, to shepherd um, species and processes that may appear comparatively weak? And what kind of place will they have in a future world? And I think that's so provocative and so powerful. Um, in my book, you know, I deal with that in a very gentle way. I talk about um, <laughs> some kind of subcultures in New York City and LA that try to maintain pigeons, which um, were once brought to um, U.S. cities as food, but are now seen as kind of pests. And so that's a very minor example. Another example, which is comparatively minor, is a project by West State Landscape Architects in which they worked with um, other architects in Madrid, Spain, and, and chose these trees that look very gnarled and kind of um, frail compared to many kinds of species of trees that are planted and figured out a way to design structures and landscapes around them having a, a kind of place in a future city. So I, I, I find projects like that, that latter project very inspiring in opening up a place for disability futures. And it's not just, I think those examples are important. It's not just about making a future for disabled people. It's about imagining an entire kind of um, environmental and urban framework in which disability and impairment are seen as, as aspects of life, you know, of, 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 um, of being part of this world, because they are. And so it makes a place for them. It's not always trying to fix them. Yeah. It seems to be an ongoing theme of our conversation. Well, I think one of the ongoing themes, I, I mean, first of all, I, shepherding seems to have had a slightly better, you know, history than husbanding, let's say, but I think neither, neither one of those quite capture the kind of emancipatory kind of heterogeneous productivity that you're that you're after there so we have to work on that so uh, both in this project and in your previous work i think one of the things i've come to love about your thinking is 
that you associate modernity broad, broadly with a kind of anxiety about difference. Um, a part of what I hear you arguing for now under the rubric of, of this kind of newly minted you know, dis disability futures is an argument for divergence on a variety of whether it's biological or neurological or speciation or, you know, and, and sort of one which considers uh, divergence naturally to be about abundance as opposed to loss. Is, is that a fair understanding? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I would also use the word weakness, opening up a space for that. Um, so that as weakness is something that we can experience, right? So all these things we're talking about, the um, historical critiques of monuments, um, historical critiques of things like boulevards and, and immense spaces of circulation, my own contemporary skepticism about the value of biocapacity that's valorized so much in landscape aesthetics and contemporary forms of ecology. It's all trying to make a space for weakness as a kind of um, a, a, a public value, I guess we could say, something that we can agree is, is, is good, right? And not to be afraid of. Um, we've all gone through this COVID epidemic, right? And we're still, many of us are still going through it. So I think that's opened up a place, um, I think, for um, people in the United States, at least, to really think about what it means to be vulnerable and frail and sick. And so, you know, I understand that none of those things seem particularly desirable. I'm not going to argue against that. But I do think we can open up a place for the fact that we experience weakness, something that's around us. And it's something that um, can be brought into our everyday experience in cities and in, in ways that we don't necessarily are not necessarily aware of or that are not necessarily very intentional or purposeful. You know, and again, actually, just one thing that you brought up earlier, I think a very easy way to think about that is that, you know, one might imagine after going through the COVID-19 um, COVID epidemic over the past three years that we would see more places to rest in on streets and sidewalks in American cities, right? Like that would seem, I would think that would be a very powerful intervention that municipalities in this country could make as a kind of acknowledgement of what we've all gone through, benches, seats, whatever. Um, the point is just to have more, or parks, just to have more places in which like you're not always encouraged to move quickly through public spaces and sidewalks and have a place for some repose and, and to relax a minute, right? We've all been through a lot. So you're you're imagining a much more uh, generous, you know, civic realm than the kind of street street front uh, restaurant shacks that we seem to have seem to have left in the wake of COVID. Um, it's interesting, you know, architecture seems to have come to terms in certain ways with weak form. We've had discourse around weak thought. You know, I, in my own interest in writing about Andrea Bronze, I have been interested in his conception of weakness. And uh, I've had conversations with Bruce Mao about his notion of the strength of the weak position. You know, we often talk in landscape architecture about the relative strength of being a relatively small field. And yet when it comes to the weakness of the body, what I hear you saying is that architecture has a tough time with that. You know, I mean, you go into great detail in the, in the back half of the book, which is more a reflection on architectural's epistemologies, let's say, um, which is more a commentary on architecture's epistemologies, let's say, um, on the way in which bodies, certain kinds of ideal bodies, certainly not weak, often strong, are both inscribed in the identity of the architect, in the aesthetic project of architecture itself. Um, so what might it mean for us to think as, you know, as architects about weak bodies? So let me just let me, I can give a very good illustration of what I mean about the ways that um, 
we valorize strength and vigor in architecture that may not be obvious, okay? And that don't have to do with access per se. So when I was a graduate student at Columbia University, and, and, and at that point, very, um, uh, I'd only been an uh, amputee for a couple of years. So I'm still learning how to, how to walk. Um, I had a professor who wanted us to do an exercise on architectural form. And so she had us pin a piece of paper to the wall that was as far as we could reach with our arms, you know, like a long sheet of paper along the wall. And standing gave us pieces of charcoal in our hands and had us draw and expressing our body into the piece of paper, the, the form of the building in this landscape she wanted us to design. So there's a lot there. <laughs> One, of course, is the idea that we're all standing up doing this exercise, the idea that, you know, a kind of expressiveness of our bodies, um, the stamina to stand and draw for a couple of hours like that. Okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot in that that I think talks about many of the values um, that are not just her values, but are values in the profession that to, let's say, to design requires um, a kind of physical capacity that we don't often think about, particularly to, to design architectural form and to create architectural form involves certain kinds of capacities. That being an architecture student um, requires certain kinds of stamina that one is expected to call on, something that we still, I think, um, need to think about as architectural educators. And then also the thing itself that we were drawing, which of course was representations of the movements of our bodies, right? Which are always implicit in any kind of architectural design, I think, that has a strong formal character. So, um, you know, I, I have a particular perspective on all that as a disabled person. I'm sure other classmates of mine probably um, weren't as impacted by that experience as I was. But I think for me, it raises all kinds of questions. So on the one hand, um, as an educator, somebody who teaches design studios, um, every now and then I like to create exercises or um, frameworks for my students to create design work that involves less reliance on physical capacity. Okay, so that's one example. I can give you an example of that if you want in just a minute. Um, I also wanna think about like, what is, what is it that we valorize when we talk about architecture being formally powerful or vigorous, right? Not just as people who make form, but as people that experience our buildings. So that's another way to question this. So in the book, the chapter, this chapter on form in which I actually relay that story has a lot of different kinds of ways in which people have wrestled with form and tried to find a way um, or have, have discovered, let's say something that, um, that contrasts with that, all that kind of formal um, power, power and vigor that I'm describing. Um, one example is this idea of formlessness um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know if like that's really an important question, but um, formlessness um, in the example that I use in the book was described by this German um, uh, art and aesthetic theorist as a kind of the, the body and a kind of the, the products of the body in a collapsed and weakened state. Okay. Um, so I think that's really provocative. So Here's a very simple example of one of the ways that I challenge form as an educator and with my students. So recently for a studio that I taught um, here in New York City, I had my students look at very formally powerful multi-story buildings in New York City, many of which were controversial, um, some of which are contemporary, like The Vessel by Thomas Heatherwick or Raphael Vignoli's Needle Tower, others that were older but that were controversial in their time, like the Guggenheim or the Flatiron Building. 
And I had each of my students reimagine those in a one-story form. And so instead of the aesthetics of ascension, it was about the aesthetics of declension, kind of bringing things down. And me, reflecting on my experiences as a grad student, instead of pinups during the studio, I had place downs. And so it was all about like bringing the culture of studio and form making down a notch and really thinking through these ideas of quote unquote formlessness, not as the absence of form, but as a reaction to the, the, the kind of physical intensity of form. And it was just such a, it was a great experience for me as an educator. Um, who knows, maybe in um, 20 years, one of those students will write a book talking about how it was a disturbing experience for them, just like my studio was a disturbing experience for me. But um, <laughs> but it was a great experience and it, it was great to like, um, to discover a way to make happen something that I had written about. I mean, another way that we've discussed in which architecture inscribes bodies is in relationship to labor, right? Uh, the cl classic definition, of course, architects don't build, they draw, other people build. So there's the labor of others implied in the definition of the architect. There's also, um, you know, our experiences as, um, as you know, architectural designers sort of, sort of working in the con con context of fee-for-design services. And um, I wonder if, if you have thoughts about the ways in which architecture expects certain bodies in relationship to the labor of making buildings. Yeah, well, in the, the last chapter, and maybe the, the one that, um, maybe a chapter that, this may sound like an odd thing to say, but as an author, I'm still provoked by the things that it raises, and I wish there was more space, so to speak, in, in the format of this book to explore the ideas that it raises more. But um, in the last chapter, I deal with the um, issue around construction and the aesthetics of tectonics, and where I really think this through in many different ways. Um, so um, just very briefly, this is a very, um, I think, significant issue that architects need to think about. And I think anybody who um, has a quote-unquote disability politics around architecture really needs to think about this. That in the United States, if you are a career construction worker, that is if you spend, spend your whole adult life in the construction industry building buildings, you have a, there is a 75% chance you'll have a serious impairment that will affect your ability to earn a living, like a, a seriously disabling impairment. That means also that construction by demography or percentage is, is really the most disabling profession in the United States of any area within the workforce. That's not something that I see discussed enough um, by architects, by the American Institute of Architects, by accrediting agencies, by architectural schools. I think it's really important. And I think as other people have pointed out, Mabel Wilson and Kadmari Baxi and others, um, Sergio Ferro much earlier. Um, a lot of that um, disconnect has to do with precisely what you mentioned, that architects use tools to draw buildings, but they rarely are involved with the actual construction of them. And, you know, they don't. Um, and a lot of the tools that we use, this is one of Mabel's points, a lot of the tools that we use actually create um, more kinds of um, distance between um, the ways that we design and ways build, buildings are actually built. So for example, tools like BIM, um, building information management systems, don't necessarily incorporate a lot of ideas about, um, about um, how buildings are constructed within them. So that's one of her arguments. Anyway, within the book, one of the things that I talk about is, is not just that, those issues, which are very important, but how like, if, like the kind of aesthetics of what we call tectonics in architecture, the aesthetics of construction, 
um, often um, further emphasize ideas about physical capacity that need some more thinking. So for example, one of the most um, famous and quotist, uh, quoted um, historians and, and writers or theorists on the tectonic, um, Gottfried Zempa, um, one of his um, implicit ideas is that the more sophisticated construction systems become, the more they translate very light materials into ever heavier and more massive forms of construction, right? So again, using this term disability critique of that might argue that we need to take a close look at that and maybe to think about or turn to ideas about um, tectonics or aesthetics of construction that don't valorize danger so much. This is something that Sergio Farrell brings up. I mean, I didn't write about her work, but um, someone that comes to mind who I think is, is doing that is a, contempor a young contemporary architect here in New York City um, named Bryony Roberts, who's very interested in recuperating um, kind of knotted or um, textile structures as very kinds of as kind of um, durable um, frameworks around which to make the skins and surfaces of buildings. Really interesting kinds of ideas about tectonics that don't um, emphasize the kind of lifting and putting in place of very heavy rigid materials and work with materials that are generally uh, much more pliable, much lighter, um, and obviously um, you know much safer in terms of um, uh, their impact on the construction site. So yeah, there's a lot there, you know, yeah. Um, uh, so I leave it to people to read the book to see kind of more of those ideas, but there's a lot there that I think is really important. Where, where I want to end is really um, talk talking about you know, disability, and I don't mean just the, the euphemism or the kind of terms of art and how they age or change, you know, um, and, you know, a movement, you know, a, 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 away from differently abled toward identifying as disabled to people identifying very, you know, aggressively as, as crip, right? So apart from the, the semantics of that, um, I'm interested in through th this topic of uh, disability and its relative um, form of self-identification, both all across the population and across, you know, one's lives. You, you mentioned construction workers, for example, 75% likely to be disabled at some point. And even if we focus just on, you know, mobility impairments for the purposes of this conversation, disability in that context would arguably, framed that way, um, affect most of us now at some point in our lives. And therefore, on the one hand, why has it been so bitterly contested and opposed as a fundamental issue within architecture? What do you mean by bitterly contested and opposed? Well, the, the 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 version of architecture you're giving us, the way that you know the canon has been constructed, whether it's uh, aesthetics, tectonics, you know, the inscription of certain not only just able bodies, but valorized bodies in service of the state project of war, all of that seems historically made available in the examples. And on the other hand, just you know, just the basic notion of you know different bodies as a as a form of emancipation seems so alien to most of architectural thought, no? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a, that raises so many different issues for me. I mean, one, disability is very, I always wonder, is disability an identity or is it something else? Like sometimes now you hear people talk about like race, gender, class, and disability. I, it, it, you, I mean, you're raising a lot of important issues that are also kind of um, things that I've been really struggling with since writing this book. Um, I don't necessarily know if disability is a very durable category as an identity. For example, I don't know what I have in common with somebody who's blind or somebody who's deaf 
other than, as my friend Georgina Klieg puts it, we, we exist in a world that doesn't really take us into mind very much. Okay. You know, me as an amputee. So there's something there. So the other issue is, you know, I, I would be curious, and I, and I don't know, if the emphasis on physical capacity within architecture is a feature of architecture's modernity. Like, is it an enduring aspect of um, ideas about buildings that go back several thousand years? I don't know. Um, but I would be, I would, I would probably guess that it's not. And that there's something in there um, about ideas about modern ideas about labor, about productivity, about economic functioning that has made capacity so central to um, not just the um, um, the building of of of, mo of a modern city or or modern um, uh, structures, but also the education of architects. There's something I don't know if this is, a, this is a great way to end our discussion, but long after the book came out, I saw this um, very interesting exhibition by Anna Bokov in um, at Cooper Union about uh, Bakumitas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Soviet um, architecture school. Um, this was exhibited at Cooper Union. It was very interesting. They had a series of devices that the architects who led that school created to evaluate people that could become an architect. Okay, One of them measured your optical acuity. One of them measured your physical strength. And one of them measured the mixture of both your physical acuity and your um, your your mental acuity by judging volumes. And then she reconstructed two or three of these different apparatuses. And I think there's something about that that is at the kind of heart of what my book questions. You know, like who gets to be an architect, right? And those two machines right there say so much about the kinds of expectations. Not just the expectations like to become an architect, but these were things that were used to determine whether you could even enter an architecture school. And these are being exhibited at Cooper Union, a school that we know has a very rigorous entry exam to enter its, you know, you know, to be educated there, right? It's very competitive. So there's something there that we need to rethink. And so I would say, if we really want to open up, you know, you and I both as educators, as professors, if we want to really think about a kind of complex disability politics and architecture. It's not just about making buildings accessible. It's about thinking about like who gets to enter this profession and represent this particular viewpoint because it has not been well represented in the past. David Gisson, thanks so very much. You've been listening to Future of the American City curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.